0: We are in 1 Samuel 25, if you're here for the first time, we're in the middle of a grand narrative, the calling of of David who would be king over Israel, and that process of him actually getting to the throne, and it's a most magnificent story that we're going to jump back into here in 1 Samuel 25. Before we do that though, most of us struggle throughout days and weeks and months and sometimes years when circumstances in life Are such that it impacts our temperament when you're sick, when you're tired, when there's financial crisis, when there are relational troubles. If you're like me, you find yourself a little less patient, a little less humble, a little less desiring to serve others or speak with others. We have a tendency to turn inward. By God's grace this morning, when we look at chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, we will see this stark contrast in the life of David, who Last week we saw in chapter 24 and 26, he had the opportunity to kill King Saul. God had brought providentially Saul right to his feet and David could have killed him on both occasions. But David knew that it would have been wrong to kill God's anointed and so God stayed his hand. And yet here in the middle of these two chapters, in chapter 25, we find David wanting to shed blood as well. Stark contrast from last week. And we will also see David as he's about to take Nabal's life being saved by God through the work of Abigail. This morning, I'd like us to see three things in light of the gospel of grace between David and Abigail and their interaction regarding Nabal. One, I want us to see the foolishness of man. We will see it in Nabal. We'll see it in David as well. Two, the restraining hand of God, how gracious he is to hold us back from the blood guilt that we want to shed. And three, a most unlikely savior. Let's look at our first point The foolishness of man We begin chapter 25 After mourning the death of Samuel The last judge, the great prophet And our story resumes With David and his mighty men They're fleeing They're fleeing out into the wilderness of Paran Which is in the northeastern part of the Sinai Peninsula They're trying to get away from Saul Because Saul's still trying to kill them Out in the wilderness David and his men They need resources They need supplies And this is where Nabal comes into our story. He's a most sordid character. And before we learn his name, we learn about his extravagant wealth. And you'll also see quickly that the man is a fool. In fact, Nabal means fool or foolish one. The narrator tells us in verse 2 of 1 Samuel 25, take a look with me. There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep. And a thousand goats, and he was shearing. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And that was a, a time of shearing, it was a festival, as long as work, they were working and enjoying a feast as well. And so the narrator tells us of this man's great wealth first, and we will understand why quickly. It defined him. It wasn't just something that he was telling us off the cuff. Nabal's possessions, Nabal's wealth, defined him, it characterized him. In fact, that's why we're told about his wealth before we actually get his name. By all accounts, his wife, his servants, his enemies, and from his own mouth, we find out that he lives up to his name. He truly is a fool. He's a fool spiritually, morally, socially. In fact, the contrast between Nabal and his wife Abigail can't be any more extreme. Look at verse 3. It says, The woman, Abigail, was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. That's Sounds like a two-year-old, right? Well, how was Nabal acting? Well, he was badly behaved. He did, not, he did not keep his mouth closed when he was eating at dinner. Um, that's a light translation. The Hebrew word is rawa or wa, and it literally means evil. The story progresses, and we learn from one of Nabal's shepherds that David and his men had actually protected Nabal's livestock when they were out in the field. Jump down to verse 15 with me. It says the men were very good to us, the shepherds testifying to Abigail about David and David's men. They were very good to us, and, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to both to us both, by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. In other words, David's encounter with Nabal proceeds actually um, the dialogue with the servants he's out in the field and David and his men actually protect Nabal's livestock and the shepherds testify This that when he was with us we didn't lose anything they didn't take any of our sheep and they protected us like a wall of protection when we were out in the fields so David knowing that he had served like this he sends ten servants to the house of Nabal and he asks for some assistance this is what he says verse 6 thus you shall greet him this is David's servants greeting Nabal. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all you have. Let my young man, men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please, David asks, please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. In other words, David sends his servants to Nabal to receive some assistance because they're out in the wilderness. They need food, they need water, they need supplies. And Nabal's rich. And so David had a right expectation in light of the service that he provided and the wealth of David and them both being Jews and both being from Judah, Eastern hospitality and Mosaic law would would give us an expectation that Nabal would actually help. Material sustenance was to be provided to the poor, to the outcast, and to those who had nothing to prepare. Nabal's response is grievous. Look at verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? He knew who David was. He's saying it facetiously. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Speaking of David leaving Saul. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Where? Nabal had heard of David. He knew that David was the anointed. He knew that David was the son of Jesse. But he doesn't just say no to the servants. He could have said no and sent them on their way. He has to go and actually come against David. Look at what he says. This, this term, who is the son of Jesse? That's a derogatory term. He's saying it in such a way to malign David and his father. And then he condemns David as a runaway rebellious servant who should be back with Saul instead of out in the wilderness with his mighty men. And then instead of taking the blessings of God and Nabal was truly blessed, he claims them as his own. My bread, my water, my meat, my shears. He makes it clear to David's servants that he has no intention of giving any assistance of any kind to this rebellious David and his his group of marauders. Nabal's foolish response is wrong in light of the circumstances. Refusing David, the would-be king, assistance was grievous. God created man to aid one another, to assist one another, and to love one another. And the Bible says, especially those who belong to the household of God. This was a fellow Jew. He had plenty. He should have helped David. But Nabal's unloving response in our narrative, is quickly overshadowed by David's counter-response. We get up to this particular t- part of the passage and we say, well, David's behave- Nabal's behavior is wrong. It's wrong scripturally. It's wrong socially. But then we hear David's response. David gets word from his servants what Nabal had said. Look at verse 13. Listen to David's response. David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. Every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David. Otherwise, they followed David to go get Nabal. By Saul, David's low on supplies. David had helped Nabal without being solicited. He protected his sheep. Nabal was a fellow Jew. Certainly, this was something that he could do to help out. Instead, Nabal not only says, No, I will not assist you, but then I will degrade your name, and I will degrade your father's name, Jesse. And so what does David do? The flesh takes over and he begins to operate on conventional wisdom. What is conventional wisdom? How do you deal with a self-centered, obnoxious, ungrateful man like Nabal? Well, it's simple. You put on a sword and you kill him. And that's what David intended to do. Not just Nabal, but every male in his household, David was going to kill. Now when you first read this story, for those of you who have read 1 Samuel before and looked at chapter 25, at first glance, Nabal seems like the guy who's got the problem, right? I mean, here he's rich, they're in the midst of a festival, David who's running for his life, he can assist, David had already assisted him, and you're reading and thinking, what is wrong with Nabal? He's unwilling to help David, especially in light of David's calling, but then you keep reading. with hearts and minds sensitive to the teachings of Christ, we begin to realize that it's David, not Abel, who has the greatest problem. It's not Nabal. It's David. Jesus Christ, centuries later, would say in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39, he says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Jesus said, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. He continues in verse 43. He says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus said, But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. David's response to Nabal is not a kingdom response. It's not in line with the God whom he worshipped and served. It's not in line with the kingdom that he would establish, nor the laws of God himself. And yet, this is the response of his flesh. And before we are too quick to condemn, we realize this is the response of our flesh as well. I remember the first time that I read this, I remember thinking to myself, that's right, David. Get your sword on and go get him. I mean, how can he talk to you like that? You're the future king. How can he do that to you? You helped him with the sheep. You're a fellow Jew. How could you do that? My flesh rejoiced in David's response. Why? Because I'm no different than Nabal, and I'm no different than David. Nabal's blinded by his greed and his self-centered ambition and consequently, he behaves badly. He acts evil. David's blinded by his trials, his pride, his exhaustion, and his sense of entitlement. And he acts badly. Why? Because that's the disposition of the human heart apart from Christ. I don't know about you, but when I'm tired, when pride rears its ugly head in my life, when I find myself wallowing in a sense of entitlement thinking of myself first I'm quick to refuse a, refuse a simple request if my disposition is bad and you ask me for something I will respond just like Nabal who are you to ask and even more so like David I'm so quick to strap on my sword and at least take your life in my mind and heart when I am feeling feeling Entitled, or tired or exhausted. This is no surprise to any of us. This is the heart of man. Our disposition apart from the saving grace of Christ and the Holy Spirit is one of self-centeredness. It is one of pride. It is one of greed. It is one of death. It is one of anger. It is one of hatred. The heart of man apart from Christ takes God's system of justice and we always bring it and we try to apply it to ourselves in a very self-centered way. It would have been just for Nabal to give David the provisions that he asked for, but he refused. It would have been unjust for David to take Nabal's life for refusing to give the provisions, but he was going to anyway. The flesh always wants to exercise God's justice when it is in our own best interest. And the flesh is the first to cry foul when justice comes against us. We see two men, Nabal and David, and they represent all mankind, male and female, apart from the restraining hand of God, apart from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and Christ in your life, this is who we are. Our disposition, our fallen nature, is one of greed and anger and hatred and death. And so we see the beginning of our narrative, the condition of mankind. Two, the second point I want to show you is the gracious restraint of God. He does a mighty work here. I mean, what would keep David and his 400 fighting men from actually going to Carmel and taking Nabal's life and every male that was there? How would David not end up like Saul at Nob when he killed the, all the priests and the entire city? How? What would keep him from this fleshly response? Only the restraining power of God. Only God restraining David from acting according to his sinful nature. And he does it in a most extraordinary way. God restrains David through Nabal's wife, Abigail. Once Abigail hears of her husband's foolishness, she was accustomed to it, living with him likely many years. She acts quickly to spare her husband's life and every male in her household. For David had sworn an oath. Look at verse 22. You talk about a rash oath. David said, God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Without telling Nabal, verse eighteen, Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves, and two skins of wine, and five sheep already prepared, and five seas, it's about thirty six liters of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. In other words, Abigail was going to take what David had asked for originally and go and find David and his men to intercede on behalf of her husband Nabal. She was going to offer a peace offering. So she finds him. She's coming out of the mountain. She finds David and his men. And, of course, they're coming to Nabal. They're coming to the household to use the sword and put the men to death. Verse 23 She hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and she said, Listen to this, look at verse 24. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Abigail wasn't even there when the servants of David were talking to Nabal. She says, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. In other words, Abigail saying, I'll be the substitute for my foolish husband. Instead of killing him or anybody else, she says, take my life, kill me instead. It's such an amazing sacrificial offering that anyone would do this. She truly was a Christ-like figure, a type of Christ, presenting herself before David and his men to spare a wretch like her husband Nabal. It's a glorious picture of someone willing to give everything for someone They're not all that fond of. But her actions and her words were intended to do more than save Nabal's life. It's truly glorious, and she does for the moment. But she was there, sent by God, to save David as well. Yes, Abigail was David's savior. Sparing him the grievous consequences of exercising his wrath and having the blood guilt upon him of spilling the blood of Nabal and Nabal's entire household. Look at verse 26. This is Abigail talking. She says, Now then, my Lord, she's speaking to David, as the Lord God lives and as your soul lives because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil, to do evil to my Lord, be as Nabal. Please forgive the trespass, verse 28, of your servant. In other words, she comes before David and she asks David if he'd be willing to forgive her husband Nabal. Forgive his trespasses, she asks. And in so doing, she's telling David to save himself from trespassing as well. So she's saying, forgive my husband, and in so doing, you will spare yourself great grief, blood guilt, from taking vengeance into your own hands. And then she, she engages in a form of prophecy. She assures David that God will not only take care of her husband, presumably, pres, presumably understanding that God will take her husband's life, but then she says, all, ensuring that all those who seek to do a, evil against David will be taken care of by God as well, alluding, of course, to King Saul. It was Abigail, not David, who was submitting to the word of God. God said in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse Thirty-five. It is mine to avenge, God said, I will repay. And then again from Proverbs twenty twenty-two, God said, Do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. And what a contrast from last week. For those of you who were here last week, Saul is delivered into the hands of David in the cave and David sneaks up to him as he's sleeping and he can put a spear right through so he can kill David on the spot. But he doesn't. David knows that he ought not to kill the anointed of God, and he has to actually argue with his men to keep his men from killing them. So David is the one who restrains evil. He's the one that pushes back death in chapter 24. And then one chapter later, he's fatigued, he's tired, he's weary, he's hungry. One chapter later, he's about to do the very thing that he told his his men not to do in chapter 24. In chapter 24, he said, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, speaking of Saul. But grievously, grievously, he does not make the same connection in chapter 25. He doesn't see that the taking of Nabal and every male in Nabal's household would be equally grievous to God. And somehow, the wisdom from chapter 24 in Saul did not transfer to chapter 25 in Nabal. He hears what Nabal said. He gets angry. He says, strap on your sword. Men, follow me. We're going to do some killing. Here, Abigail is the teacher, and David becomes the student. She exhorts David not to have this blood on his hands, not to have his conscience going into his ruling as king contaminated by this horrendous deed. In verse 31, look with me. She says, My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. She said, If you stop now, if you don't do this now, then in the future, when you're seated upon the throne and you're ruling as king of Israel, you won't say, Why did I do that? How many sins, my beloved, do you wish you could undo? You say, Everyone, Amen to that how many of those catastrophic mistakes have you made in life? He said, oh, if I could just go back, if I could just undo the wheels of time a bit and make that other choice and that other decision, then I wouldn't be so grieved over it still. Abigail comes to David and essentially says, don't add to the ledger. Don't add to the sin. Don't take this and put it on the books that God will open before you. Don't do it. Keep your conscience clear. Don't shed the blood. What David saw clearly in chapter 24 with Saul, he misses entirely in chapter 25 with Nabal. Now, many of us, including myself, were quick to condemn David for being so forgetful. He said, how could, you, how could you stand so fiercely in the word of God here amongst Saul and then, and then turn around and want to commit mass murder in the next chapter with not much time passing? How could he be so absent-minded of the laws of God? It's not that he didn't know. He knew he wasn't going to submit. He knew killing Nabal and all of the males in that household for what transpired would have been wrong. He knew that. But he wasn't going to submit to it. I don't know how often I have been in this exact same situation. You too as well. If not for the constant restraining hand of God pulling us back How oftentimes do we find ourselves in those situations making those decisions that are hateful to God, hateful to man, and hateful to ourselves, bringing blood guilt on us? Have we not all found ourselves in similar situations? Seeing clearly in one instance, making right decisions according to the word of God, submitting to God in one situation, and then you change the character, change the time, change the disposition... You're tired, you're sick, you're hungry, you're stressed out. And the exact same biblical principles that should apply do not, and you find yourself shedding blood. David was blind, and he needed to be able to see. Abigail brought sight through the word of God. He was about to commit a mass murder of his own people before Abigail came to him. He was about to do the very thing that we saw Saul do at Nob with the priests. Now, I imagine David, prior to encountering Abigail, if asked by his men, is your conscience clear? He would have said, yes, my conscience is clear. I've heard this in the context of Christian circles far too often. Simply because your conscience is clear does not mean, one, that sin is crouching at your door and about to devour you, or two, that you have sinned and need to repent. I imagine David would have said my conscience was clear and he was about to commit murder. How often we are veiled, my beloved, just like David, thinking that we are thinking clearly, thinking that we are acting justly, strapping on our swords and saying, I'll show you what I'm going to do. When in truth, we're not living by faith in God's word, we're living by the flesh and circumstances and emotions. Having our decisions influenced by our struggles, struggles at work, struggles at home. You ever noticed how your temperament and disposition change when things are hard at work and when things are hard at home? By a lack of sleep? Or if you're sick or you're in chronic pain? How that influences the decision-making process? Maybe it's those besetting sins in your life you've dealt with all your life. Maybe it's a financial crisis or a broken relationship. How deep and multifaceted is the wisdom of God to see these things before they devour us? How desperately My beloved, we need the word of God daily to keep our path straight. How desperately we need a savior like Christ, someone that we can come to and pray to who will make our path straight, to not be blinded by our pride or our circumstances, to not live by sight or feelings, but by faith according to the word of God. How desperately, how desperately do we need Abigail's? We need Abigails in our lives coming to us and saying, stop, you're going to make a catastrophic mistake if you continue down this path. How desperately we need to be Abigails to one another. True brothers and sisters coming alongside each other saying, stop, brother. You're not seeing clearly. You're not thinking clearly. You may say your conscience is clear, but it can't be because this is contrary to the will and word of God. Stop. And we need to be Abigail's coming to David as Abigail came to David. She came lowly. She came out of her love for her husband and out of her love for her future king. She came humbly. I mean, she, she gets off the donkey, not prideful, not harsh, but she bows down as a servant to David. And she says, Upon me, my Lord, place the guilt. It's such a remarkable intervention. Abigail's posture before David should be our posture before one another. I dare say this is not usually how it goes. Usually when we go to intervene in someone's life, we're mad at them for, for making the decision or heading down that path. And we come to them angry and harsh. And we may speak the truth, but it's not in much love. And it certainly isn't humble. Abigail comes to David and she falls down on her face. And she says, Lord, do not do this grievous thing. Do not bring this blood guilt upon yourself. She loves him right to the cross. It's extraordinary. I need lots of Abigails like this in my life. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, we are to be completely humble and gentle with one another. We're to be patient, bearing with one another in love. We're to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, speaking the truth in love. That's how we're to come to one another. And then Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, two, we are to correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. How oftentimes do we say nothing? We're not Abigail at all. We hear, yeah, we'll let him go. You know, I'll pray for you. Instead of, strapping up the donkeys and bringing the provisions and going out and saying, wait, wait. Patiently, lovingly, correcting, rebuking, and training, encouraging with patience and careful instruction. Saints, we need Abigails around us and we need to be Abigails to one another so as to not have our hearts hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need the word of God, we need prayer, we need Abigail, and we need God. God. I mean, flat out, God saved David. He used Abigail, but it was God who intervened. Charles Spurgeon writes this Heart of stone, relent, relent. Melt by Jesus' love subdued. He continues, says, To the believer, there is abundant cause of hope here. He who made the heart can melt it. I love that. He who made the heart can melt it. Job said, God maketh my heart soft. It is the peculiar office of the Holy Spirit to renew our nature. Indeed, he makes us to be born again, working on the behalf of our Lord Jesus, whose royal word is, Behold, I make all things new. The Holy Spirit can work in us conviction of sin, the new birth, faith in the Lord Jesus, deep contrition, and a holy tenderness. I love that. It's not staying as Nabal and staying as David. It's being renewed. It's being transformed by the power of God. And so we see, first, I pray, the foolishness of the heart of man. And I pray that we can identify with that. Secondly, that we see that the restraining hand of God, that by His grace, He comes and He intervenes radically. He says, I'm not going to let you go off the cliff. Lastly, I want to reveal to you a most unlikely Savior. I mean up to this point in time David's going to he puts on the sword he's going to go kill Nabal Abigail comes says don't have the blood guilt on you but what does he do? He doesn't even know this woman is is the king to be going to listen to this woman? Or would he proceed according to the flesh? Would he tell his men onward working salvation with his own hands by killing Nabal and every male in his house? Look at verse 32. David said to Abigail, she spoke. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 32. Who sent you this day to me. So David recognizes, you're here, Abigail, because God sent you to intervene. Verse 33. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you. He ran out, blessed be you. Who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. In other words, taking vengeance into my own hands. Verse 34, For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. And so he says, Had it not been for God sending you to stop me, Your husband would be dead and every male in your household would be dead. Every servant, every child, every slave. David's hand against Nabal is stayed because God intervenes by sending Nabal to save David. Quite an unlikely savior. Abigail reminds David of his commitment to God, his commitment to God's word, of not acting impulsively according to the flesh, of remembering that he's the king to be and that he'll rule on that throne, and therefore he doesn't want his conscience weighed down with this act he's about to engage in. Now of all the people, or angels, or animals, that God could have sent to warn David, and yes, God does warn us sometimes through donkeys, He chose Abigail. He chose Abigail. The very man who David's going to kill, he takes his wife, he says, go stop, David. Go speak truth to David. Go love your husband and love your king to be as well. She is a humble, discerning, in this particular time, woman. There's no political clout There was no stature for her. And yet God uses her to save his anointed from doing the unthinkable, from tarnishing his name, from tarnishing God's name. And David agrees. He hears the wisdom of God speaking through Abigail, and then he blesses her for stopping him from shedding blood and bringing disgrace upon him and his future throne. Look at verse 32 again. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. And then in verse 33, keeping me this day from blood guilt. That's not a word we use a lot. It's used three times, 26, 30, 31, and 33. You know what blood guilt is? Blood guilt is the guilt incurred by a person for shedding innocent blood, according to Numbers 35, 33, and 34. And it made a person, listen closely, blood guilt made a person unclean to come into the presence of God. It made them unable to worship the living God. So serious was blood guilt amongst God's people that the entire community shared in the guilt until that person, the assailant, paid the penalty of the death with their own life. No other penalty No other type of sacrifice could substitute for the death of the guilty party except the blood of the guilty party. That just punishment for spilling innocent blood was blood. Judas Iscariot incurred blood guilt by betraying Jesus in Matthew chapter 27. For those of you who went and to a Friday night uh, service, you heard about that. Those who called for the crucifixion of Christ saying, crucify him, crucify him. They accepted the burden of blood guilt for themselves and their children in Matthew 27, 25. Even Pontius Pilate, the pagan Roman governor who sentences Jesus to death, says in Matthew 27, verse 24, after he sentenced Jesus to die, it says he took water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd, and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. He's saying, this blood guilt's not on me, and of course it was. He's saying, it's not on me, it's on you. You keep telling me to crucify him. Blood guilt before the holy God of all creation is a most fearful thing. And yet, all of us, listen closely, all of us find ourselves in a similar situation, in desperate need of a greater Abigail, someone who will save us from our own blood guilt. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've never shed innocent blood. I'm not a murderer. My beloved, listen closely. According to the Bible, according to the word of God, and our own lives testify to this, we're all murderers. Even David, although he never physically laid a hand on Nabal, he may never even seen him. I don't know. He'd already murdered Nabal in his heart. He'd already killed him. You say, what do you mean? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, listen closely, 21 And 22, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Jesus said, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. In other words, according to the standards of God's kingdom, according to God's laws, And God is the ultimate judge. David committed murder in his heart the moment he said, Strap on your swords, men. We're going to go kill him. He had already killed him in the eyes of God. Now that means if we take Matthew chapter 5 and what Jesus said to be true, that means we're all murderers. Because we've all been angry enough with someone in our heart that would qualify as murder in the kingdom of God. And if you're like me, then you're a mass murderer. I mean, I'm a veritable serial killer. I think I've killed the the majority of the church numerous times. You know when you say, oh, I could kill someone? See, you don't really mean that. No, I, I do, but I can't. If you call someone a rock or you fool, condemning someone then you commit murder in the eyes of God. Even if you never shed blood, I've I've never actually shed a man's blood and taken a life. But in the eyes of God, according to his laws, according to Christ, I am a murderer. How many times do you need to commit murder to be sentenced in our country? Once. And yet I am a mass murderer. The blood guilt of many, the blood guilt of some of you, is upon me. And that, according to Jesus, puts me in danger of the very fires of hell, of uh, being separated from God and his people forever and ever. Now, some will hear this, I know, even within the church, and they'll say, this sounds so extreme. This is so difficult. I mean, you, you're calling me a murderer. I mean, I, I came here for an Easter, an Easter Sunday service, and you're calling me a murderer. What am I doing here? I get it. I remember the first time I heard this, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Just murdering someone in my heart is not the same as actually killing them. But we only think this teaching is extreme because we miss the holiness of God. We miss God's absolute holiness and we miss the kingdom that he has set forth and the laws that he set forth. Like pigs that wallow in mud all their life, they have no idea, they're filthy. They don't know it. Fallen creatures. Man, we have wallowed in our sin for millennia. And therefore we don't realize how sinful and fallen we really are. That our hearts are, as Jeremiah said, deceitfully wicked above all else. We say to ourselves, I used to say to myself, as long as I don't pull the trigger, I didn't really kill someone. As long as I don't physically commit murder or adultery or stealing... As long as I don't actually do it, then it's okay if I want to in my heart. There's nothing wrong with that. It's such a cop-out, and we know it. I mean, it's such a materialistic approach to the person, right? That you can be one way on the outside, another way on the inside. I I can hate you in my heart, but as long as I don't kill you, then I'm not murdering you. Ladies, let me ask you a question, especially if you're unmarried. Would you accept this false dichotomy in a potential husband? If a man said to you, "Here's your proposal, ladies, you' ready? I will act like your husband on the outside. I'll remain faithful, I'll provide for your needs. I'll help raise the children. I'll be your covering, as the Bible says, but I will never love you. I will never desire you as my wife, and I, in my heart, I will detest the thought of being married to you my whole life. How many of you would say, I do? No one. And yet on the outside, this man has said he will do exactly what you want him to do, but on the inside, he says, my heart will never be yours. The same holds true in our relationship with God. The same holds true when it comes to murder. I think I shared this with you once. I asked my students one time, it was a terrifying question, I shouldn't have asked it. I said, how many of you would actually kill someone if you weren't to get caught. I had a class at time, maybe forty kids. Seven kids raise their hand. I'm like, let me write your names down. (laughs) Seven kids raise their hands. I mean how oftentimes do we not exercise these sins because of the social pressure the stigma attached I don't want to go to jail so I'm not going to murder you I don't want to lose my job so I won't murder you I don't want my family not talking to me so I won't murder you but you take all those away and my heart I'll murder you I'll be the first one to strap on my sword and call others to do the same The problem is God knows our heart Proverbs 21:2 All a man's ways seem right to him but the Lord Weighs the heart. He knows who you really are. He knows who I really am. So we can, we can adjust to the stigma and we can make things look good here, but God knows us. He knows us through and through. He knows that I'm a murderer. He knows that you're a murderer. He knows that I'm a liar. He knows that you're a thief. He knows all these things. And before a holy God, even one of those brings his justice and wrath, even one. And yet we have a lifetime of sinning against a holy God. The question for you and for me and for all mankind is, where's Abigail? Who's going to save us from this mess? Because not a soul here would look at the law of God and for a moment contemplate his holiness and say, I've never broken any of those laws. No one would, believer or non-believer, you can't do it. So how will we be saved from the blood guilt we brought upon ourselves? We need an Abigail, someone to come to us and free us from the bondage of sin that we have placed ourselves in. Who will wash our blood stained hands? Who will offer us hope this day in the face of the blood guilt that has come upon us? Again, it's a most unexpected Savior. It's not the wife Of Nabal. It is a lowly first century carpenter from Nazareth, a man of no reputation or political standing. It's the same man that millions of people have gathered across the globe in churches to worship this morning. Same man. The man who came to earth over 2,000 years ago, so humble and so tender, and yet offering salvation to mankind a way out of our blood guilt. The man who came before God and said like Abigail before David, Christ said to God, On me alone, Father, be the guilt. It's so wonderful. The fact that Jesus Christ went before the Father and He said, Don't punish them, punish me. Take their sin and put it upon me. Take the wrath they deserve and put it upon me. And Christ said, On me alone. The man who, being without sin, asked the Father... To forgive our trespasses as Abel had asked David of her husband he said to the father put the blood guilt on me I'll pay their debt I will, I will take the punishment of their murders I will take the punishment for their lies and their adultery and their, the, their, their, their stealing and their blasphemy and their idolatry he said I'll take it And so Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, was sacrificed on the cross so that all who repent and believe and follow Him will not receive the blood guilt that we rightly deserve. Everybody starts in the same place. Everybody has the blood guilt upon them. The question for you and for me as we leave this place today is that will you leave with that stain upon you or will you cry out for mercy to God? Will you hear your most unlikely Savior say to you, repent and follow me and you'll live. Jesus Christ was crucified. The wrath of God was put upon him and then he died and he was buried. But that's not at the end of the story. And many people who have gathered throughout the world in churches today, they know that. And that's why they're in churches today to celebrate the resurrection of this crucified, buried, risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He didn't stay in the tomb. And the great hope of millions now and for centuries has been the forgiveness and grace that comes through this most unlikely Savior, this greater Abigail, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 28, after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb to look for the Lord, to look for Jesus. When they found it empty, in Matthew 28 verse 5, an angel said to the women, Listen to this, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. And then he said, he's not here. He has risen just as he said. He's not here. He's risen. That means all of our sin, all the blood guilt, all the murderous thoughts, all the idolatry, all the adultery, all this thing, all that, all the mistakes that you regret, all the things you you could wish you could undo, you can bury with Christ. Put them in the grave with Christ so that through faith you can rise up and live in Him today, tomorrow, next week, and every day that God gives you breath in your lungs to breathe. Christ rose from the dead to make us new creatures, to put to death sin once and for all, to give us new hearts and new minds, new desires. Not self-indulgence like Nabal, but gospel hospitality. Not pride and arrogance like David wanting to kill people, but true humility. True humility. Not a hardness of heart or desire to shed blood when wronged, but tenderness, compassion, and forgiveness. Only through the death and resurrection of this greater Abigail. Jesus Christ, as God, offer his grace and forgiveness to flow from Christ. But he calls you to repent. He says, Today is the day of salvation. Recognize the blood guilt that's upon your hands. See, indeed, of your heart of hearts that you are a murderer. We know that. That you are a thief, that you are a liar, that you are. He says, Recognize that, but don't stop there. Bring it to the cross. Bring it before Christ. Seek forgiveness. Receive mercy. Receive grace. Why not? Why not? A hymn that we sing often. I'll read from it Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can we do to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Will you? I know how difficult it is to come to terms with the truth of our hearts. I know it all too well. I know how hard it is to hear that you are a murderer, that you are a thief, that you are a sinner through and through. I know how hard it is to hear that the right, just punishment for you is hell. That's hard. Our flesh wants to think that we're generally good with some minor, minor imperfections. The Word of God says otherwise. The Word of God says there's no one good, no, not one. Our own hearts testify to this. Human history testifies to this. But what great hope we have this morning in light of a resurrected Savior. What great hope we have in the grace and mercy and forgiveness and love that comes from God through Christ, who is risen, through our unexpected Savior. The one David himself in the 51st Psalm said, Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, the God of my salvation. I have the bread and the juice that represents the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus Christ. I don't know a better way to honor our Lord in his death and resurrection than through the ordinance of communion so i was i thought it was fitting for us today the communion service is for all those who believe on christ all those who have repented of the very sins and the blood guilt that we've talked about all those who do not want to stay in this state or into eternity with this but want forgiveness want the hope of christ it's for you The prophet Jeremiah said centuries before Jesus, God speaking through the prophet, listen, this is from Jeremiah 2.35, he says, you say I am innocent, surely God's anger has turned from me. God said, behold, I will bring judgment to you for saying I have not sinned. He continues in Jeremiah 4.18, your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. I want to pray for God to forgive us collectively as a people for the blood guilt that we have brought upon ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we recognize the grievous nature of our fallen hearts we we can reflect upon our own lives and see the innumerable times that we have rejected you and turned from you and fought against you the living god our creator we know the blood guilt that is upon us we know that we're not innocent We know that your anger is still there apart from Christ. We come before you, Father. For you said, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, you said we will be saved. And so we come before you asking for this salvation, this great work of Christ. That you would set us free from the sin and death that holds us. That you would forgive us for the blood guilt we have brought upon us. And that you would be the savior to us. I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they would have great hope in the resurrected savior. I pray for all those who are here who do not know Christ that you would show them your holiness, you would show them the depth of your sin, you would show them the great grace and forgiveness that comes from Christ, that they too might repent, believe, follow him. pray you would do that mighty work in Christ's name. Amen.